Hello, it's Landon. And Monique. Welcome to the Nursum Podcast. We are in the same room. Kitchen of knowledge. We're back in the kitchen We're of knowledge. We're back in the kitchen of knowledge. For the first time in like two years. I think so. It has been close to that. I think so. Yeah. What we're really hope, what I miss the most <laughs> is the garbage truck coming by. Yes. We are totally hoping for some dumpster fire action <laughs> today. And you never know, it is early morning and mm-hmm. and sometimes the dumpster truck comes and we get to listen to him backing up. And I know all of you are missing the sound of the reversing alarm halfway through us being <laughs> Our podcast, smart. exactly. Although um, this morning we have a film crew outside there. our window. So um, yeah, it's going to be interesting. So we may start squealing if somebody famous walks by. I yeah, doubt as, it. As I was walking walking in, there was, they were all worrying because the talent is about to arrive. Oh, the talent well. is arriving. I thought... Oh my goodness, what a class-based system you have. You guys are all what? The non-talent? Exactly. And the, the well, maybe they were talking about you, Landon. Oh, the talent is arriving. The talent has arrived. Absolutely. And I even made him his favorite blueberry muffins oh God, this morning. So we're doing years. well. So we're excited. Um, and it probably will sound in our voices as well. But let's get to it. Yes? Sure. What do you want to talk about? Well, I thought we could talk about the wonder drugs of COVID because um, unfortunately, but we're Monique, still in it. COVID's done, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, no. So as in often the cases, our our podcasts, um, they arise when I am dumb and I recognize I have a bit of a knowledge gap. And so first of all, though, we hope that you are all seeing the light at the end of this pandemic tunnel and that you are all looking after your mental and physical health. Here in BC, our vaccination rates are doing doing fairly well. And in the city proper, our hospitalizations were decreasing, though we are now in the fourth wave of the unvaccinated. However, during the third wave, I was asked to help with our community nurse practitioners who were tasked to follow up with all the COVID patients who were discharged from hospitals. Uh, The numbers were overwhelming and our community NPs needed some respite. And in following up with these patients, I noted that some of these patients had received, now this is, I'm going to try really hard, folks, to say this, but it's tocilizumab, which is usually used in arthritis. So they were receiving tocilizumab, and many of them had also received dexamethasone and had gone home with long-term antibiotics and prednisone. So, of course, I had to understand the rationale for both the corticosteroids and the arthritic meds, which are interleukin-6 inhibitors, in treating COVID itself. There is a caveat to to this podcast, uh, because news and scientific understanding and guidelines about COVID-19 are continually evolving as we learn. And so this is our understanding today in September 2021. But the good thing about this is that we always base our guidelines on research and evidence. And therefore, as we learn, we need to adapt. So I'm going to start with dexamethasone and prednisone, uh, probably the first drug out of the gate that showed some promise in treatment of patients with severe COVID-19. Dexamethasone works by suppressing inflammation in the immune system, both of which are activated in the course of COVID-19 infection and lead to lung injury and multi-system organ dysfunction. There were several glucocorticoids uh, studied during the recovery trial, which we will talk about in a moment. Of note, the others, particularly hydroxychloroquine and lopinavir retinavir showed little promise and were abandoned. Again, little promise and were abandoned. So don't be taking those drugs uh, for COVID-19. Or better yet, first soapbox, don't get yourself in a position where you need to take drugs for COVID. (laughs) 
and get your damn vaccination. Exactly. Yeah. So why do we even think of corticosteroids? Well, we know that the immune system and the inflammatory response that elicits lung tissue damage is a byproduct of the body's response to viral respiratory diseases. Dexamethasone has been studied in the past in influenza, SARS, MERS, and most importantly now in the context of SARS coronavirus 2 or COVID and ARDS. So ARDS is the most common medical complication of COVID resulting from secondary inspire, or sorry, respiratory insults such as pneumonia, hypoxemia, widespread alveolar damage, and immune system impairment. And I think the, the thing that caught us all by su- surprise with, sorry, I'm distracted. The yeah. garbage truck is here. <laughs> we have the windows closed, so you might not hear it because the well. film crew's out there with their generators, but I'm just <laughs> letting you all know the garbage truck is here. So the, the thing that caught us by surprise with COVID was this ARDS that develops in hours, not weeks like in our old ICU patients. Exactly. Um, So sometimes corticosteroids have been beneficials uh, to these people and other times not so much. In patients with pneumocystis pneumonia and hypoxia, prednisone reduced the risk of death. However, in outbreaks of other novel coronavirus infections, just had to give a little time for the beeping of the garbage (laughs) truck. In severe pneumonia caused by influenza viruses, corticosteroid therapy appears to result in worse clinical outcomes, like secondary bacterial infection and death, right? It mm-hmm. makes sense. And if you suppress the immune response with steroids, yeah. I think you missed you're this. going to suddenly get bacterial yeah. infections. So what you were saying, though, that in, in outbreaks of other no, novel um, coronavirus infections, like MERS and SARS, they actually saw that corticosteroids were associated with, with delayed, delayed virus, virus clearance. clearance. Yeah, right. yeah. So, so I totally talked in a circle there. I know. So let yeah. me clarify. Sure. In other coronaviruses, yeah. corticosteroids were bad. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. In severe pneumonia caused by influenza, yeah. corticosteroid was Seemed to be bad. Better. Yeah. Oh, bad, yeah. Bad because they yeah. caused bacterial infection. Yeah. And in AR- in ARDS, however, there was a decreased risk of all-cause mortality and decrease in duration of mechanical ventilation. So yeah. now we basically have a virus that coronaviruses, corticosteroids bad, yeah. but ARDS caused by this coronavirus, corticosteroids good. good. Yes, so exactly. here we are in the middle of, well, what do we do? Yes. So recommendations on the use of corticosteroids for COVID are largely based on data from the recovery trial, which was a large multi-center randomized open-label trial performed in the United Kingdom. This trial compared hospitalized patients who received up to 10 days of dexamethasone to those who received the standard of care. Mortality at 28 days was lower among patients who were randomized to receive dexamethasone than among those who received the standard of care. The benefit was observed in patients who were mechanically ventilated or required supplemental oxygen at enrollment. No benefit of dexamethasone was seen in patients who did not require supplemental oxygen. So according to preliminary findings for patients on ventilators, the treatment was shown to reduce mortality by about one third. And for patients requiring only oxygen, mortality was cut by about one fifth. So 20 to 33% increase in survivability Mm -hmm. again, Ventilated and oxygen. uh, Oxygen dependent. And these, again, these are live trials during an emerging illness. So, you know, you can go look at these trials and you can go look at any trial during COVID and you'll be able to poke some holes in it. And and that kind of, it's the reality of doing 
research during emerging illness. It's never, it's never going to be a double-blinded, completely perfect, we enrolled these people and planned our study out great. Um, exactly. But that's a, that's a pretty robust study. Yeah. So on the 2nd of September in 2020, the World Health Organization issued an interim guideline on the use of dexamethasone and other corticosteroids for the treatment of COVID. The guidelines were developed by a panel of WHO and international experts and investigators, and it is based on evidence uh, collected from seven clinical trials. So the guidelines made two recommendations. One strongly recommends that corticosteroids like dexamethasone, hydrocortisone, or prednisone be given orally or intravenously for the treatment of patients with severe and critical COVID-19. And two, it advised against the use of corticosteroids in the treatment treatment of patients with non-severe COVID unless the patient is already taking this medication for another condition. The time and duration of medication should be um, given once for seven to 10 days. So one of the things... Once daily. Once daily for seven to 10 days, excuse me. One of the things that the recommendations didn't touch on was timing of when to give the corticosteroids. The use of the corticosteroids during a respiratory illness is controversial because we already talked about that. Because while... Mounting an immune response to eliminate a viral infection, the body must not damage their own native lung tissue. An overactive immune response may result in damage to that native lung tissue that is worse than the damage from the original virus. So using corticosteroids to suppress an immune response may result in an uncontrolled viral infection leading to more damage. So a key question when using the corticosteroids in respiratory illness is timing. In bacterial or viral infections, symptoms generally appear within two days of the initial exposure. Your innate immune response and consequent inflammation follow within about four to seven days, with an antibody peak around seven to 10 days. Then there's this adaptive immune response that ramps up and stops and clears the infection in about two to three weeks. So that's any kind of bacteria and virus. So hypothetically, corticosteroids should be used early on the heels of the innate response to reduce that inflammation that comes at the four to seven day mark. This timed approach has been supported by several well-designed clinical trials, all of which found an association between early corticosteroid use in patients with moderate to severe ARDS and therapeutic benefits, so survival or reduction um, or need for respiratory therapy. You know, the, the one thing that is clear about the trajectory of COVID-19 is that it doesn't resemble any previously described respiratory illness. I think that's why we were all so nervous about it, right? Because it wasn't the same. Totally. And, yeah. and, you know, we had, it's weird I was going to say the fortunate experience, the experience, I yes. won't label it, yeah. of being present during SARS. Yes, and, and MERS actually and too. And being <laughs> the hospital that had one of the first patients in the world with SARS come through the door yeah. and and so I think for, I know for me a lot of it was okay well we did SARS yes. and in the end it ramped up and we all went oh okay yeah. it's you know it's bad illness but it's kind of mm-hmm. hard to get yeah. and blah 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 and here we are with a similar virus and oh really easy to get and causes severe illness and oh that mm-hmm. caught us by surprise didn't it yeah so unlike MERS or SARS, unlike MERS, sorry, SARS, COVID-19. Yeah, I'm sorry, I put it all in there because I wasn't you put sure. SARS, I coronavirus, like, we have, that's so 2020. I know it is. It's co- we'll just say COVID. <laughs> I guess it's so 2019 because yes, it's it COVID-19, is. 19, yeah. isn't it? Uh, anyway, uh, so unlike MERS, COVID 
is seldom found in blood during symptomatic illness, even in people with severe disease. In influenza, viral clearance is usually associated with resolution of symptoms. In patients with COVID-19, however, hypoxemia can occur just as the viral load in the upper respiratory tract is disappearing. In other respiratory diseases, ARDS tends to occur in the early days of the illness as the innate immune system responds to the infection and lung tissue inflammation begins to rise. And that's an important thing with ARDS to to know if you've never known that is ARDS is actually the body's response that's killing you. Yeah, It's not the disease. disease. It's your body basically. It's kind of like anaphylaxis almost. Yeah. Don't compare it to anaphylaxis. But (laughs) it's it's like your body is overreacting to what is there. And it's like if you just stopped overreacting and calmed down a bit immune system, you'd be able to clear this infection and not cause ARDS. But now you're overreacting because you're weird and reacting weirdly to this and it causes ARDS. So um, in other words, so by the time ARDS begins to occur in patients with COVID, the viral load has begun to wane and patients are paradoxically requiring respiratory support. This delayed ARDS phenomena is unique to SARS-CoV-2 or COVID (laughs) and likely explains why patients in the recovery trial treated early with dexamethasone, those not on respiratory therapy did not benefit while those treated later did. Yeah. Because the RDS or the symptoms yeah. come late. Yeah. Exactly. Which is weird. You've kind of had the virus. Yeah. You're starting to clear the virus and now suddenly you're sick. Yeah. And quickly sick. Yeah. And weirdly sick. Yeah. Like it's weird, isn't it? Yeah. Sats of sixty, but you're still walking around your house. Very weird. I know. I tell you, you should do some of these ambulance calls with me, Monique. <laughs> Like, yeah. You're like, you look fine. Yeah. But our machine says you're not. This <laughs> exactly. Is, this is very odd. Yes. The authors of recovery note in their conclusion that peak viral shedding in COVID-19 appears to be higher early in the illness and declines thereafter. Thus, the early use of drugs such as corticosteroids that blunt the immune response in COVID-19 patients not yet seriously ill may be counterproductive, if not harmful. Hmm. So in their summary, the recovery authors stated that timing is a vital element in dexamethasone therapy. In treating COVID, I'm quoting this now, it is likely that the beneficial effects of corticosteroids in severe viral respiratory infections is dependent on using the right dose at the right time in the right patient. Oh, it's a very nursing school. I know, isn't isn't it? it? (laughs) (laughs) Really? That's that's my conclusion to that statement. (laughs) Oh, really? Get the right drug at the right time to the right person. Okay. Uh, High doses may be more harmful than helpful, as may corticosteroid treatment given at a time when control of viral replication is paramount and inflammation is minimal. So that's that early phase again where we want the immune system to be killing the virus and we don't even have lung inflammation yet. Yeah. It's it's very interesting. It's like sneaking it in at the right moment. Exactly. When the virus is now basically fought, but before ARDS starts. Starts. I know. And it's weird that most of the virus, well, weird and not when you see how um, transmissible it is, that the, a lot of that viral shedding is right at the beginning, right? right. So it's kind Before of interesting. Before people are symptomatic. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Which so is, right? basically we're hooped. <laughs> but oh, I think actually. Oh, but hold on. We're not. Because we have a vaccine. Because you could get a vaccine. Yes. Get exactly. a vaccine, people. Soapbox <laughs> number two. There will be more. 
So I think Dr. Fauci actually said it best during a, a Pennsylvania Medicine Cancer and COVID-19 virtual conference in late September about the lack of benefit of dexamethasone in early treated patients. So what he said was early on, you wanna hit the virus and leave the immune response intact. Whereas in later disease, what you want to do is dramatically diminish the hyperactive inflammatory response. So this leads to the use of, oh gosh, all these, usually you're teasing me about how oh, I I'm say waiting. these. I know. I so am I'm gonna, on hold. So this leads to the use of tocilizumab Not and that. cirilumab, which are currently I think used. it's cirilumab. Is it cirilumab? Okay, that sounds better. It's that's easier anyway. Yeah. Let's let's change it. If it yes. is serilumab, we're changing it to cirilumab. <laughs> Uh, but they're currently used to reduce um, inflammation in patients with arthritis. And hyperactive immune response is when the immune system goes into overdrive and it leads to multiple organ failure, which causes death in COVID-19 patients. Uh, whereas dexamethasone dampens the immune system across the board, tocilizumab and cirilumab uh, are more focused. They are antibodies that block the effect of interleukin-6, which is a protein that stokes that immune response and has been very prominent in patients with COVID. Infections by COVID induces a dose-dependent production of interleukin-6 from bronchial epithelial cells. And the associated systemic inflammation and hypoxic respiratory failure can be associated with heightened cytokine release, when you, which you see in elevated blood levels of interleukin-6, CRP, D-dimer, and ferritin. It was hypothesized that modulating the levels of interleukin-6 or its effect may reduce the duration and or severity of the COVID-19 illness. So Which, did, did they study that many? Yes, they did. It was called the REMAP-CAP study. Which was led by the Imperial. I know it kind of sounds, sounds kind like of a, funky, doesn't yeah. it? Remap cap. It was led by the Imperial College in London and the Intensive Care National Audit and Research Center in the UK and the United or the University Medical Center in Utrecht. And the findings were published um, this year in February in the New England Journal of Medicine for anyone who wants a more in-depth analysis of the study. I'm not gonna to talk too much about it. But it enrolled 800 patients admitted to hospital with COVID who were ill enough to require transfer to ICUs. It was conducted in six countries. Both drugs appeared to work equally well, though the results were more certain for tocilizumab, which is an older, more widely available medicine. Nearly 36% of patients in the standard treatment group died, compared with 27 of those in the group that also received either tocilizumab or cirilizumab, a reduction of about a quarter. Um, the benefit was seen when the drugs were given within 24 hours of the patient entering intensive care and were in, dish, in addition to a corticosteroid, such as dexamethasone. More importantly, those treated with these drugs recovered faster and were discharged from hospitals seven to 10 days earlier. These reductions in hospital stay would free up lots of ICU beds and therefore the resources to handle critical care patients, right? You have to think about those things, not just about treating and making sure people get well, but by doing that, we have like the capacity the to look at, yeah. yeah and look and after it's becoming people. an issue definitely here in this, in, in this in fourth Canada, wave especially. in Canada yeah. is the, is the Definitely Critical in Alberta and Saskatchewan yeah. are, are really, and Ontario are really struggling at yeah. the moment, yeah. Um, so Anthony Gordon, a professor of anesthesia and critical care at Imperial College London and chief investigator of the study, told a science media center briefing, if we treat 12 patients, it would save one life. This is a very big effect and really exciting. So I know that, that doesn't sound like great odds for a lot of people, but it is. But it's it's one out of 12. And, yeah. and that's on top of that forward flow efficiency of exactly. decreasing an ICU stay. Yeah. 
So these results have led the National Health Institute in the US and here in British Columbia at the Center for Disease Control Therapeutic Committee to make recommendations for the use of, to, now it's my turn, tocilizumab? To, to, to yeah, Does that sound, I, don't yeah know. I think so. Anyway, and or cirilumab, which we just rebranded as cirilumab. Um, so not... we'll, we'll specifically be commenting on BC's recommendation, but certainly, so we won't be commenting on, but you can look up the recommendations yeah, in, in I... your part of the world. Sorry, we will be commenting on BC's recommendations. Do we want to? Do we but, need to, do you think? Well, it's just in case people hear the doses okay. and that kind of thing. So so the tocilizumab um, is eight milligrams per kilogram IV, single dose up to 800 milligrams, or cirilumab, 400 milligrams IV, single dose. And that's for and that's from this study, is for patients requiring life support due to confirmed COVID-19. This includes high flow oxygen support, so OptiFlow, if the flow rate is greater than 30 liters per minute, or an FiO2 of greater than 40%, mm. or invasive or non-invasive ventilation, or vasopressor or inotropic support. So we're talking about really sick people. So we're talking about sick people, but <laughs> yeah. it's interesting because the depending on where you work, yeah. Someone on OptiFlow of 40% at 30 liters per minute actually is not probably the sickest patient on your ward at times. No. We use it a lot. Like that's actually a fairly low flow and a low FiO2. So that's one that I could see people maybe not flagging is going, well, yeah. this person's, you know, they got COVID, they're on our ward, they're on OptiFlow. Yeah. This is that patient as well, as yeah. per the guidelines in this study. Then obviously the ones that are like intubated, sicker than anything in ICU, those are obvious. But that's one that I could see slipping through the cracks, especially if you do high acuity care on your inpatient, inpatient units, unit. which they do in our hospital, right? OptiFlow on a ward is not abnormal. Absolutely. And so does that one fall through the cracks? Um, so yeah, those of you who work in a system-based care kind of thing like that, don't let those ones fall through the crack. So those drugs must be administered within 24 hours of the initiation of life support measures, as I just defined. Patients admitted to hospital for more than 14 days with symptoms of COVID should not receive either of the drugs for this indication. I think it's because so, of that trajectory of how the totally, disease works, like you've, right? Yeah. You've already missed the boat, yeah. basically, with yeah. those ones. Remember the right timing, right drug. Tocilizumab or cirilumab should only be initiated when life support is required because of COVID-19 rather than other causes. So so this is the post-COVID, yeah. now I'm recovering in hospital and I got a raging pneumonia right. and now I'm intubated. Yes, or I'm a, a big COVID, PE. <laughs> now I'm a COVID patient who's intubated from yeah. a pneumonia or a PE. This is not the this is not the drug for these people. Yeah. Okay. It is not recommended. Those drugs are not recommended for patients receiving low flow oxygen support. The recovery trial found a survival benefit of 4%. Um, in patients who had a CRP of greater than 75 and low flow oxygen, non-invasive respiratory support or invasive mechanical ventilation. But the recommendation was in the end, prioritizing this, these medications for the, only the critical care, critically ill patients at this time, yeah. which is the population shown to benefit in both the remap cap and recovery trials. Yeah. Okay, so a bit of weak evidence, basically what that says is the recovery trial had a bit of a weak evidence survival benefit mm -hmm. in a Goldilocks patient. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but they, when they look at everything, the recommendation was uh, just for the critically ill patients. Yes, yeah. because it's just a modest improvement, right? Right. Yeah. So the results of both of those trials provide consistent evidence that tocilizumab when administered with corticosteroids offers a modest mortality benefit in certain patients with covid who are severely ill, 
rapidly deteriorating with increasing oxygen needs and have a significant inflammatory response. So that sounds like a this, this, and this. this. That, that is most of the COVID patients. Yes, so exactly. It's not yeah. hard to fit people into those categories. Yeah. FYI, as per always, yeah. these studies did not include pregnant women, did not include children. So there's no recommendation specific to those groups. And again, th- this is the emerging illness medicine yeah. that we're kind of being thrown into this industry, right? And yeah. and obviously the clinical experts at the bedside talking with patient family and looking at the patient will decide mm-hmm. the risk versus benefit. And, you know, that's, again, that's a patient-specific thing and these would be kind of an off-label use at that point. Exactly, but, yeah. hey, if the alternative is death, then... <laughs> You're going to take something, yeah. You, you might. Yeah. So to summarize... Uh, dexamethasone and prednisone work, but for critically ill patients and should be given later in their clinical course. Tocilizumab or cerilumab is recommended for patients with COVID-19 who require life support, and that's ventilation, high flow oxygen, which is the one that's going to slip through the cracks, or vasopressors. Yeah. At the beginning of this pandemic, it totally felt like we didn't know how to treat these people with COVID, and both to Silizumab <laughs> and dexamethasone offer some hope now, or yeah. at least something to throw at these people instead yeah. of just watch them ventilated and doing yeah. nothing. Well, I think it's so interesting to me, right? Because um, and this is probably going to be soapbox number three, but it is interesting to me that these are ongoing studies as people get sick and we're trying to treat them. And yet the amount of research and study and evidence for vaccines far outweigh the studies that have supported these modest improvements in treatment. It's interesting, isn't it? It is. That why would you, right? Like, why would you risk coming in and taking a drug that we're still studying and has a modest benefit when we know if you get vaccinated, those have been studied extensively and shown to be beneficial? To me, it boggles the mind. It, 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 it's an interesting discussion because you'd sit at the bedside, yeah. hi, we're going to give you this not experimental, but somewhat we're still on minimally at, researched yes. drug to yeah. treat your COVID. Yeah. But you didn't want the vaccine. And it was a modest benefit. But but you're yeah. okay having this drug that hasn't really been researched in this realm except for a couple studies that exactly. were done in the operational phase of a pandemic. <laughs> exactly. It's strange, isn't it? It is kind of strange. It is. Which brings me to have to. Well, I cannot you know believe what? I can't have to talk about Invermectin. Well, my, my abdomen's feeling bad. I'm wondering if I have worms. <laughs> and, and I should I, take some Invermectin. I really feel, Monique, that you should prescribe me a horse deworming agent for that would help. my abdomen, please. Please. Yeah, I cannot believe I, we actually have to address this, but I think that it is important as healthcare professionals for us to arm ourselves with what is out there so that you can, when patients come in and ask you questions, that you have the science behind it to be able to explain it, right? 100%. And think. So tell um, me about new hydroxychloroquine. Yes, the new hydroxychloroquine. Um, Invermectin. So Invermectin is an antiparasitic agent, and it's used to treat actually parasitic infections in humans. And it is also an anti-worming medication for animals, particularly horses. The molecular hypothesis of Invermectin's antiviral mode of action suggests an inhibitory effect on severe ARDS secondary to COVID replications in the early stages of infection. However, the Cochrane Review in July 2021 stated that based on the current very low 
to low certainty in evidence, we are uncertain about the efficacy and safety of Invermectin used to treat or prevent COVID. The completed studies are small and few, are, and uh, a few are considered high quality. So small studies and the studies that are out there are not good studies. And overall, the reliable evidence available does not support the use of Invermectin for treatment or prevention of COVID outside of well-designed randomized trials. So tell me, why did people all of a sudden think that Invermectin was going to do the trick? Tell me, how did it start, Landon? Well, the idea that Invermectin could be a coronavirus treatment began gaining steam in actually the spring of 2020, when Australian researchers observed that the medicine killed the virus in a laboratory setting. Okay. So in a little dish, yeah, it killed the virus. <laughs> yeah. The findings had notable caveats, however, which... Why we would, just talk about why would we listen to those we're <laughs> yeah. just going to listen to one thing yeah for one the amount of drug required to have an effect on the virus was much higher than the amount approved for use in humans and could actually be fatal so yeah you know what you pour enough stuff on a virus it'll break just the weight alone maybe yeah. will break the virus it's Who the knows? new bleach yeah, injecting totally. yourself Inject with bleach. bleach yeah Lab-based tests where the drug and virus interact in a petri dish also don't account for the complexities of the human body. Exactly. While there are a few ongoing clinical trials, most experts say that thus far there's no high-quality research that would lead them to recommend using Invermectin to prevent or treat COVID-19. Clinical trials conducted so far have been controversial. Findings have been complicated by concerns over issues with the research, such as you know plagiarism, um, methodol <laughs> methodological flaws, and small sample sizes. Those are all things you want listed as feedback on your research <laughs> yes, proposal. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, at least one large study that reported benefits has been withdrawn following complaints about plagiarism and data manipulation. The best data currently available is from a trial in Brazil, which has not formally published its findings. In that study, Invermectin performed similarly to the placebo, he said, meaning that there was no apparent clinical benefit to taking the medicine. Merck, a pharmaceutical company, as most of you probably know, that um, they happen to manufacture Invermectin, said its scientists are continuing to review available data, but at this point they have found, quote, no scientific basis for a potential therapeutic effect against COVID. No meaningful evidence for clinical activity or clinical efficacy in people with COVID and a concerning lack of safety data in the majority of studies. So let me just pause there. <laughs> The people who make money off this drug have said they have a concerning lack of safety data in the majority of studies. Hmm. I know. Funny thing is, I don't think I've seen Pfizer, Moderna say that about the vaccine. No. Soapbox number four. Yeah. Uh, the FDA has not approved Invermectin for any treatment of any viral infection. Yeah. So, there we go. Yeah. But you know what? It's out there. I know. And I can't, like I said, I can't believe we have to discuss God it. God help us. The internet won't disappear. Yeah. It's interesting. Like, I, I would have loved to, I'd love to go in a time machine back to the Spanish influenza and like, yeah. and compare them with the lens of social media yeah. and internet and ability to communicate really is the larger thing yeah. there. Because obviously back then they didn't travel. They had very little ways of communicating false information. Of course, there'd have been snake oil salesmen and all of this during this pandemic. But yeah. but what real reason did they have to communicate broadly versus now? 
Exactly. And how would the pandemic had looked different? Yeah. Anyway. And I think, unfortunately, it's a lot of fear. And I think when people have fear, when they reach out, they're actually not trying to get somebody to help them understand why they're not doing something. They're actually trying to find somebody to validate that their fear of not doing it is um, justifiable. So they're just looking for people to actually support their right. idea and rather than to say, I don't understand this. Can you help me understand it so I can make an informed decision? And, and I guess, find those people everywhere on exactly, Twitter and on, Facebook. Exactly. You find that community. I guess what we have struggled a lot with is trying to understand why anyone would base their decision to use Invermectin. That or snake oil of or the moment. anything, right? In- Invermectin has probably about another 30 days of trendiness. And exactly. then some Something other weird drug will come, will come up. up. Yeah. Yep. And you know what? It shows, I don't want to say a desperation, but it shows that we are, we are bleeding people with COVID. People are dying every day around the world. And so scientists are trying to grasp at anything, to research, to say, can we find something that we can help treat these people um, while we're trying to stop the disease from actually mutating and going around the world? So they're going to try lots of different drugs. But instead of jumping on that bandwagon, give them time to figure out if this works or it doesn't work. But in the meantime, we have something that works to prevent illness, death, and hospitalization, severe illness, the vaccine, which has been studied so extensively, has jumped all the hoops, regulatory hoops, and have been proven 90 plus times percentage for that. So I just don't, in my head, understand that. I really do not understand that. Because for me, as a healthcare prevention, uh, prevention is better than the cure. Why would we want to get something if we can prevent it from actually getting there? I, I just don't understand it. I, I don't either. I like I I've never I've never in my entire career had someone come in with a cut and when I say, Is your tetanus up to date? Mm-hmm. Had them say, Well, I don't believe in, in the tetanus shot. I've never like I I know they exist. Yeah. I, obviously I just haven't had my chance to yeah. teach someone about that. Because yeah. you know, obviously they exist. But generally Yeah people don't even question it it's like oh i need my tetanus shot people even come in to get a tetanus shot because they cut themselves whether they need it or not yeah yet for some reason yeah it's the same thing it's a vaccine and if you don't understand vaccines we did a podcast on that a few months ago yeah I, i don't get it i know Part of me, part of me, you know, I try to believe the best in everyone, but is it a power and control thing? It's like, well, you can't tell me what to do. And it's like, you know what? I'm yeah. not, t- fine, make your own decisions. Just don't come into my hospital <laughs> exactly. when you're sick because there's actual people there. I know. Who did get the immunization, yeah. who now have cancer, yeah. who can't get their abdominal surgery. I know. Because unvaccinated people are taking up their post-op ICU bed. And that's the true selfishness around the vaccine debate for me it's actually not about you at this point no it's about population-based medicine and that's that is what a pandemic is it's absolutely population-based health it's a disaster and yeah people who aren't doing their part to be the population-based healthcare people it's like well yeah it's sad it It is is sad sad. and i get it you know everyone has their opinion and their you know i i try not to judge people based on it but it does annoy me yeah that where i was in a hospital last week they were canceling cancer surgeries 
because their ICU was full of unvaccinated COVID people. Yeah. And it's like, really? That I person know. that person needs their cancer surgery. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. Anyway. It is interesting, Ooh, that right? Soapbox number nine or something. I know, but I do think it's quite interesting because I I think when you look back, I look at this whole situation as a resuscitation, right? We're emerged nurses. So during a resuscitation, when somebody is exsanguinating to death, we make every effort to save that person's life. So in terms of COVID, that would be vaccinations, masks, social distancing, um, washing your hands. All of that is the measures that we're doing in order to save a life. It is not the time to debate about which one of those we're doing right. everything at this moment. This is not the time to to debate. Once the patient has been resuscitated and is stable, we can step back and say, okay, which one of those things was probably the thing that did the best, right. and which is was the one the, we should continue? Was it the tourniquet, the direct pressure, the TXA, or the surgery that stopped their bleeding at the time? We do all of it. All of it. And later on, we can debrief and say, was the tourniquet what saved their life? Exactly. And that's a, that's a that, good analogy. Right? Yeah. And so during this, while we're still bleeding out, people are still dying of COVID, and the numbers show that this fourth wave is the unvaccinated, then we need to do everything. And we as healthcare professionals have to arm ourselves with the scientific knowledge and one-on-one, -on -one, when your patient, I ask every single patient, and it's not a judgment thing, it is important for me to know what's going on in order for me to treat them and to keep my people safe, who are like our staff, our work family safe, while we're caring for them, or is this a symptomology of COVID? Um, and so we need to know those things. And when I when they say they're not vaccinated, I always say to them, may I ask you, is there a reason why you've chosen not to be vaccinated? And can, is there questions that you would like to ask me that I could help clarify this so that, you know, you are armed with the best information to make your informed decision? So doing it in that way, I think, is much more helpful than to get angry mm -hmm. because they may have questions and they don't understand it and they just need somebody to be clear about what's going on. Does that take time? Yes. But I'm a huge believer that knowledge is going to help you. So if you don't understand it as a medical professional or healthcare professional, how are you going to explain it? So you can't just say, well, you should do that. No, explain to them. Try to understand where they're coming from and then be able. And I think that's why you and I are doing these podcasts. When we did the vaccine one, when we're doing this one, is so that you have the knowledge to have that discussion with your patient so that they can make an informed decision. And at the end of the day, we can see this uh, this. Um, finish line, which seems to be getting further and further and further. And frankly, there is an element of compassion fatigue. Um, when we have, we feel like we've been doing everything uh, to help save lives. And all we're asking the public to do is do one thing is to get vaccinated. And so it's hard for us when we've put so much at stake to be continually doing this when this science, like so incredible, like you and I nerd out that we got a vaccine this quickly, that when the whole world puts their mind on one thing, look at what Months. we can achieve. 
Look months. at what we can achieve. And if the whole world and all those scientific minds got this together, it it's, blows my mind. But let's get off our high horse. Well, that's so, all we had to say. So Exactly. So really, in the words of our wonderful Dr. Bonnie Henry, we're going to say until next time, be kind. Be calm. Be safe. Thank you. All right. Bye. For past episodes and to comment on this episode, please visit our website at nursum.org. That's N-U-R-S-E-M dot O-R-G. You can follow us on Twitter at NursumCast and also find us on Facebook at Nursum Podcast. We look forward to your comments and suggestions for future episodes. Remember, before incorporating anything new into your work, ensure you are supported by your own scope of practice, workplace policies, and your own knowledge and comfort. The Nursum Podcast is brought to you by PRN Education, www.prneducation.ca.